All right. Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to the Oxonian Society. I'm just focus grouping these jokes just to see who gets that joke. Um, it's a very cheap shot, actually, to say that. I'm referring to an article in the New York Times last night about the Oxonian Society, or yesterday. Uh, they basically claimed that the Oxonian Society had no legitimate uh, connection to Oxford. Um, the Oxonian Society meets here in New York in clubs like this and counts among its speakers such luminaries as um, Sharon Stone. <laughs> and it's a real elite sort of thing. But um, incidentally, uh, if anyone shows up late, and, and that couldn't be any of you, but if anyone shows up late, there are seats along here, just so uh, everyone knows there are plenty of seats here. There's two seats here, and there's even a couple of seats back here, so we're going to be a little tight, I think, today. Anyway, um, I wanted to point out that the Socrates in the city is really not like the Oxonian Society, because in fact we have some very real connections to Oxford. We do, at Socrates in the City. Indeed, it was at Oxford this summer that I met our speaker tonight, Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein. Her talk at Oxford was so wonderful, I thought, hey, let's get her to come and speak at Socrates in the City in New York City. And here we are. But uh, seriously, Socrates in the City does have other connections to Oxford, which the Oxonian Society does not have. And I want to mention some of those tonight. For example, our previous Socrates speaker, Joe Lacanti, who is right here in the front row. This is our alumni speaker's uh, area. Uh, Joe and I, we had the high privilege of being asked to debate at the Oxford Union last spring, and we took him up on that, and we, we, we gave him what fur, and uh, it, was, it was an extraordinary thing, but that actually took place in Oxford, am I right? We have photos to prove it with the black tie and, and everything, the loving cup, it was good, and um, many of our previous Socrates speakers have either attended Oxford University or, in fact, have taught there or do uh, teach there. So as I say, unlike the Oxonian Society, which was really taking a task in the Times yesterday, Socrates in the City has very legitimate connections to Oxford. But alas, our name is Socrates in the City, and we have no real connection to Socrates. That's, um, that's our particular disconnect. They've got their disconnect. That's our disconnect. Uh, in truth, many of the people who attend these gatherings, I know from experience, don't know how to spell Socrates. And uh, a few of them don't know how to pronounce it, which is really extraordinary. But uh, anyway, so I, I think the, the point here is that like the Oxonian Society, we're a bunch of uh, wine-bibbers and posers um, who get intellectual big shots like Sir John Polkinghorn and Dr. Elstein to provide us with some sort of intellectual cover and respectability. And, and I don't know if I mentioned Sharon Stone, but uh, we're going to get her eventually. Um, but seriously, folks, we're, we're kidding here. Uh, tonight, we proudly welcome Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein of the University of Chicago, where she's a professor of political and social ethics. Her resume is, in fact, so impressive and her accomplishments so vast, I'd better just cut the uh, chit-chat and plunge right in because I really do want to get to those accomplishments. Um, her bio says that she is a political philosopher whose work shows the connections between our political and our ethical convictions. Her tools in showing this connection sometimes include an electron microscope. Can you hear the crickets? I know, that's really reaching very far for a joke. Basically, I wanted to say that uh, it's hard to see that connection <laughs> between the political and the ethical. But, you know, if I really have to explain it to you, either it's a bad joke or you're unworthy of, of the joke, which is excellent. 
And I, I think it's perhaps a little bit of both, perhaps. Um, anyway, Dr. Elstein is the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Professor of Social and Political Ethics at the University of Chicago, and she's been in that post since 1995. She's also taught at the University of Mass, Massachusetts, and Vanderbilt. Uh, she's also been visiting professor at Harvard and Yale. Professor Elstein holds nine honorary degrees. Surely not simultaneously. That's physically impossible. Yeah. I, I understand that even Andre the Giant in his prime could only hold six. Only could hold six. Uh, unless you don't mean that literally. Um, I should mention, incidentally, that I'm currently uh, working on getting my honorary doctorate. Thank you. Because that's the only way it's going to happen. Um, in uh, 1996, uh, Dr. Elstein was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's the author of many books and was a contributing editor for the New Republic um, before it became a scandal sheet, right? I'm sorry, that's the Inquirer. I always get them mixed up. Um, or Vanity Fair, perhaps. Uh, Professor Elstein has been a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Nothing to sneeze at there. She is also a Guggenheim fellow. She's a fellow of the National Humanities Center, and in 2003-2004, she held the McGuire Chair in Ethics at the Library of Congress. Who can forget the McGuire Chair at the Library of Congress? I, I believe the cushions are stuffed with horsehair, are they not? You would know, because who can forget the old McGuire Chair? Um, Professor Elstein also serves on the Scholars Council of the Library of Congress, and she's the recipient of the Ellen Gregg Ingalls Award for Excellence in Classroom Teaching, the highest award for undergraduate teaching at Vanderbilt University. Again, nothing to sneeze at. But perhaps the most impressive of all these amazingly impressive accomplishments is that in 2005-2006, that's this year, Professor Elstein would deliver the extremely prestigious Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh. You don't have to deliver, deliver those lectures in a Scottish brogue, but they won't stop you if you do. But those are extremely, uh, that's just an extraordinary honor. Previous Gifford lecturers have included Alfred North Whitehead, William James, Albert Schweitzer, Niels Bohr, Hannah Arendt, and Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, what, if, you're, if you're asked to deliver the Gifford lectures, you become so intellectually respectable it hurts. It hurts me, really, to think about this. So thank you for lending some gravitas and respectability to this cheesy little ad hoc, feel-good-about-ourselves, wine-bibbing uh, group. Thank you very much. Um, it, it's interesting, though, whenever the Gifford Lectures are mentioned, they always have to sort of give it some context and explain that, you know, uh, Albert Schweitzer and these people, they always mention the names that I just mentioned. Um, but they don't mention all the names of the previous uh, people who've been asked to deliver the Gifford Lecturers, and I think there's a good reason for that. Uh, for example, one of them is Noam Chomsky. I don't know. That's, uh, that's a little... That's iffy. And also, it's hard to believe, but um, Charo was a Gifford Lecturer. Uh, they, they obviously don't mention that, because that's not going to make you look very good. They also don't mention that uh, Harvey Keitel and Moms Mabley were previous Gifford uh, Lecturers, and uh, it gets even more depressing. Recently, Curtis Sliwa... Uh, and John Gotti Jr., both mentioned as Gifford uh, lecturers. So they're really, these much-vaunted Gifford lectures are not so impressive after all, when you really know the full, the full picture. Um, I have to say it's very easy to sound impressive when we're selective about whom we mention in association with something. That's a perfect example. Um, another example that you always hear, uh, Stephen Hawking is said to occupy the Lucasian chair of mathematics at Cambridge, and then they inevitably say, which was formerly held by Sir Isaac Newton, we always hear that, the Lucasian chair in mathematics at Cambridge, previously held by Sir Isaac Newton. Well, I don't want to break it to the, you know, any fans of uh, Stephen Hawking's here, but Sir Isaac Newton did not exactly leave 
the chair 10 minutes before Stephen Hawking's occupied it. No, you see, history tells that Sir, Sir Isaac Newton resigned his chair in 1701, leaving an alarming gap of 279 years <laughs> between his occupying it and Sir Stephen Hawking's occupying it. Additionally, history tells us that between 1701 and 1980, many terrible, unworthy, hideous persons occupied that selfsame Lucasian chair, persons whom Sir Stephen Hawking's psychophantic biographers would have us conveniently forget. We know, for example, that uh, not long after Sir Isaac Newton vacated, the chair was occupied by several fishwives of ill repute, <laughs> followed by a vulgar cobbler with scrofula, and most disturbingly, it was for many years occupied by an incontinent charwoman. And of course, never been, been upholstered, tradition and all that. It's, uh, next time you hear about the Lucasian chair in mathematics, don't be so impressed with that either. Where were we? Ah, yes, here we are at the, uh, where are we? We're here, we're here at the Union Club to hear Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein. She will be speaking tonight on the question, who are we? I warned some of you um, to read uh, The Abolition of Man. I didn't warn you. I should say it's a glorious, tiny little book, which I read on the subway lately. And uh, it's that short. You could actually read it on the sixth train. You know, if you don't take the express, you can... It's a couple of days and you can knock it out. But uh, anyway, we asked the big questions. One of the biggest questions, which I think we've not yet asked at Socrates in the City, is who are we? We have asked, uh, what is the nature of evil? Uh, where, where do we come from? Where are we going? Is there a God? If there is a God, what is God like? What do different worldviews uh, say about evil? We've asked those questions. But one of the questions which I've always wanted to ask is the question, who are we? And, of course, that can be answered a number of different ways by, in a number of different uh, contexts. Uh, tonight, we're going to hear uh, from Dr. Elstein on that. Um, what she had to say about it this summer, which is roughly what she's going to say here, uh, was, was glorious. And I look forward to, uh, to hearing it again. I had the privilege of hearing this talk at St. Aldate's in Oxford at a C.S. Lewis conference, which I think I warned you all about months and months ago. I said, if you don't go to that, you're going to miss something. Well, you didn't, and you did. It was very nice. But I tried to poach wherever I can. And so one of the things that I tried to poach was this wonderful talk. I said, we can, we can actually redo that in New York. So Dr. Elstein will speak for 35 or 40 or so minutes, after which, as usual, we'll have time for Q&A. Uh, as uh, always, we mean to be done by 8.30 sharp. Uh, tonight, we might be 8.35 sharp. Uh, after which we'll have more wine or d'oeuvres piano music. So without further ado, my distinct pleasure is to introduce Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, I think Chara was actually after dinner entertainment at the, uh, at the uh, Giffords. I, um, the, uh, well, thank you so much, Eric, for this invitation. Um, I should tell you I don't ordinarily sound quite this nasal. I came down with a nasty cold conveniently yesterday, and um, I have taken every known uh, across-the-counter uh, cold remedy, and the upshot is that I'm still really stuffed up, but my mouth is very dry. Um, so I, I may resort to the water glass uh, more frequently than I usually do. Um, as some of you may know, Eric is a very persuasive person. And uh, once, once he got on my case, I knew that I had to give. I mean, it just sooner or later I had to say yes. And it so happened I was going to be in New York uh, for another reason, so this worked out rather well. With that, let me just plunge into this, um, alas, uh, very sobering topic. Uh, in March of this year, 
the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine published an essay on euthanizing handicapped newborns that incorporated something called the Dutch Groningen Protocol for such procedures. The New York Times Magazine on July 10th, 2005, reprinted those protocols under the heading, Euthanasia for Babies, colon, Is This Humane or Barbaric? Now, this way of presenting alternatives in a guise of putative neutrality, of course, is typical of much current opinion. I suspect that all of us know that the average reader of the New York Times prefers to choose the humane and not the barbaric alternative. And the humane course, it turns out, is the one that favors infanticide if the Groningen protocols are followed. Euthanizing babies under such circumstances is the way of reason, we're told, and those who say, no, we must not cross that line, advance the way of what the author calls sentiment, which he equates to non-reason. Now, the essayist, a fellow named Jim Holt, asks his readers to imagine a heated dining room table argument about such matters. The way of reason, when I do this, it means I'm quoting. So this is the beginning of a quote, this is the end of it. The way of reason um, involves unflinching honesty rather than shrouding such matters in casuistry as in the United States. For moral sentiments are inertial, resisting the force of moral reason. And the essay concludes in this way. Just quote Verhagen. Verhagen is the Dutch doctor who identifies himself as a pro-infant euthanasia practitioner. Just quote Verhagen's description of the medically induced infant deaths over which he has presided. It's beautiful in a way. It is after they die that you see them relaxed for the first time. And even the most spirited dinner table debate over moral progress will, for a moment, fall silent. Now, the author, Mr. Holt, obviously wants us to imagine the hushed atmosphere as one in which diners are overwhelmed by the vision of peace at last for infants born with uh, deformities or certain ailments. I suspect that most of us gathered here in this room would fall silent from the horror of it all, basically the dictum, let's give these perturbed spirits peace at last, let's kill them. Now, Holt also seems to believe that brutal candor about such matters is the ethically preferred route, you know, sort of, yes, I'm killing them and that's the right thing to do, rather than the kind of muddling through that may involve allowing, let's say, multiply handicapped infants to die rather than using heroic measures, for example. That is presented as casuistic confusion. So any course that reflects our moral uneasiness is dishonest, and any course that candidly makes it possible to kill is honest and reasoned. Now, does anyone, anyone in this room familiar with C.S. Lewis, does anyone doubt what C.S. Lewis might say about this, about the way in which Darkness becomes light, and healers become killers, and all the rest. Uh, those of you, and I'm not assuming I can speak of anyone in this room, uh, I know Joe's read a few things, and Eric, I presume, but those of you somewhat familiar with my work will know that these are issues that have long troubled me. 
I worry that in the name of reason, we may be eliminating whole categories of human beings. For example, so overwhelming is our current animus against the less than perfect that fully 90% of pregnancies that test for Down syndrome are, are aborted in the United States today. And all of this comes under the rubric of choice, and it is under the notion of expanding choice that we are busily narrowing our definition of humanity, and along the way, a felt responsibility to create welcoming environments for all children. When we aim to eliminate, rather through euthanasia or systematic selective uh, abortion of flawed fetuses, one version of humanity, perhaps suffering humanity, but humanity nonetheless, we dangerously constrict the boundaries of the moral community. Now, in his ethics, the anti-Nazi theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged by the Gestapo in uh, the closing days of World War II, Bonhoeffer insisted that the most radical excision of the integrity and right of natural life is what he called arbitrary killing, and he, he defined that as the deliberate destruction of innocent life. And he goes on to say, the right to live is a matter of the essence. The right to live is a matter of the essence. It's not a socially imposed value. There's a truth claim there that um, holds no matter what. For even, Bonhoeffer says, the most wretched life is worth living before God. Now, as with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, C.S. Lewis was writing under the shadows of Nazism and Stalinism. His essay, The Abolition of Man, appeared in 1944, entitled uh, or subtitled Reflections on Education with Special Reference to the Teaching of English and the Upper Forms of Schools. Now, this would seem to have very little to do with the grave matters with which I have begun. Not so. It turns out that Lewis sees pernicious tendencies in, of all places, elementary textbooks. Now, at first puzzling, this quickly makes sense. The general cultural milieu, a culture's mores, as Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, author of the great classic work on democracy in America, as Tocqueville might put it, the, these mores are always embedded in and embodied in the books that we require our children to read, the books that we use to teach them. So what on earth was going on with English textbooks such that the great C.S. Lewis would take note of them? Well, first, he detects an embrace of subjectivism, subjectivism, which means speaking epistemologically the embrace of both positivism and emotivism. And that will become clearer as I go along, I promise. 1944 and the immediate post-war decades were the heyday of this approach, and it had clearly made its way into elementary schools, even as it was the dominant, as we would call them, even it was, as it was the dominant approach to the teaching of philosophy at Great Britain's elite institutions of higher learning. So we have the reduction of values to the subjective feelings of the speaker, that sentiment opposed to reason, if you will, of which the New York Times piece spoke, uh, that view that values are re moral claims are reducible to subjective feelings 
leads to the embrace or is itself a fruit of the embrace of two interlocked propositions. And Lewis summarizes them this way. First, that all sentences containing a predicate of values are statements about the emotional state of the speaker. And second, that all such statements are unimportant. That's the end of the quote. Now, one need not refer, he goes on, to the general philosophy at work that all values are subjective and trivial in order to promulgate this philosophy. Indeed, many textbook authors, he tells us, probably do not recognize what they are doing to the school child. Certainly, he continues, the school child cannot know what is being done to him. And in this way, another little portion of the human heritage has been quietly taken from school children before they are old enough to understand. Now, let me provide an illustration of this general approach from my own experience. When our daughter, Jenny, was in fifth grade in a progressive public school in the town in which we then lived, one of those bucolic New England college towns in which the university students outnumber the permanent residents, Uh, she was required to complete a worksheet. I think she was in fourth grade. Uh, Distinguishing fact from value, and values, of course, are defined, again, as subjective opinions having no cognitive content. They are unreasoned. This is that positivism and emotivism of which Lewis spoke. And she read aloud as she was doing this and as she was trying to figure out this worksheet, and... I began to rant, um, as I uh, tend to do when I'm confronted with, confronted with this sort of thing. And finally, to help her understand, I said, well, Jenny, if I say something is wrong, does that mean I am stating a fact or a value? Values, remember, being the things that we all have, and we can't really distinguish between them because they are all come out of the same subjectivist stew. Predictably, Jenny answered it would be a value. So far, so good. I was leading her someplace. Um, I continued, well, Martin Luther King said slavery and segregation were wrong. Suppose there's someone who says slavery is good, and we, in fact, should have more of it. Couldn't we say he is wrong, and Martin Luther King is right, and that slavery and segregation are bad, and that that isn't just Martin Luther King's opinion? Well, Jenny was stumped for a moment. She was clearly bothered by this. And then she said, well, I think slavery is wrong too, but that is just my opinion. Now, as you might guess, our discussion didn't end there. But uh, but this experience reinforces Lewis's claim of the pervasiveness of the sorts of teachings that he indicts in his essay. For Lewis, when ordinary human feelings are set up as contrary to reason, we are on dangerous ground indeed, for a botched treatment of basic human emotion is not only bad literature, he tells us, but is morally treacherous to boot. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. Now, Lewis insists that in Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, and some Eastern religion, uh, one finds in common, in his words, the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others are really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kinds of things we are. It's the end of the quote. And he refers to this 
collective understanding of transcultural universal values and claims. He refers to that simply as the Tao, T-A-O. Thus, emotional states can be, he says, either reasonable or unreasonable. They're not opposed to reason, for one must not traffic in false distinctions between reason and emotion, rationality, and sentiment. In the regnant positivism that he's criticizing, by contrast, the world of facts without one trace of value and the world of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice confront one another and no rapprochement is possible. It is all, he says, a ghastly simplicity. Now, when I was a graduate student in the late 60s and early 1970s, this ghastly simplicity was, in fact, the reigning approach in political science. Uh, now, to tell you the truth, I never quite got it, uh, which is no doubt one reason I became a political philosopher. Um, we're a sort of lower order of being within the world of political science uh, because we persist in asking these bizarre questions about uh, justice and decency and truth and so on and so forth. And the approach to political science uh, dictates the severance of these questions of value from uh, questions of fact. Now, in my youthful optimism in the late 60s, early 70s, I had for a time believed that the decisive critiques of this approach mounted by thinkers like the philosophers Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre had finally pounded the nails into the coffin of positivism in the human sciences. Uh, turns out it wasn't so. Uh, this approach reappeared with with gusto and the current dominant approach in the social sciences, which is so-called rational choice theory. Now is not the time, I realize, to unpack rational choice or, or rat choice, as some of us prefer to call it, um, in any detail. But suffice to say, expanded as an entire worldview rather than utilized as a more modest approach to a finite series of economic decision-making processes, rat choice once again, trivializes all statements of value. They have no truth warrant or claim. It enshrines a reductive view of the human person as the sum total of his or her subjective preferences, his or her calculations of marginal utility. And within this world, everything in principle can be commodified. Everything in principle has a price rather than a value. Any restrictions societies draw on where human preference might take us are entirely arbitrary. There are no intrinsic goods or evils. Nothing is valued for its own sake. So, for example, we may value babies in a certain way. It's an ancient sentiment, and we get very emotional about it. But this is a claim that has no rational content in this view. And you could as well commodify our understanding of babies and have as a number of very well-known and distinguished um, adherents of this view have argued, you could, ha you you could have a market in babies uh, where you would, people who didn't want their babies could advertise, presumably post stuff on the web and sell the child to the highest bidder. So every value is at base then a preference and it is describable in the language of maximizing utilities. Let me give you another example of this. When I was teaching at a particular university, not the place where I am now. An eager young political science job candidate gave his required job talk, and he was one of those folks um, 
poor young guy, you know, probably hadn't had much of a choice about the kind of training, maleducation he'd been subjected to, but to him, everything was a preference. There was no other way to talk about politics or the moral life. So when he had completed his remarks, which were about American political life, by the way, I asked him the following. I said, when Martin Luther King delivered his great speech, he cried, I have a dream, not I have a preference. How do you explain this? Is there a difference? And he was a little bit flustered. And then he said, well, what King was calling a dream is really a preference. And there's no difference in principle between King's dream and a debate about alterations in the price of utilities, for example. Now, this way of thinking makes a hash of our moral sentiments and of our God-given capacity to reason about that which is true and that which is good and that which is worthy. Now, this surely is what C.S. Lewis feared in 1944, feared that something precious and irreparable was being lost. And as in 1944, those debunking the normative status and truth warrants of claims of value were tacitly promoting values of their own, writes Lewis. A great many of those who debunk traditional or, as they would say, sentimental values have in the background values of their own, which they believe to be immune from the debunking process. So one thinks, for example, of the fundamentalist skeptic who's skeptical of everything save his fundamentalism or the proclaimer of moral relativism who relativizes everything save his claim to moral relativism, and so on. So in Lewis's epoch and ours, what matters is not the dignity of each and every human life, but rather variety of things, including, for example, and it pertains to my topic, the preservation of the species, and newborns with major disabilities will never do that. They have no instrumental value. They will never maximize their reproductive potential. So they lack value. Two, they will never contribute to production. They will be worthless on the marketplace. That, too, means they are without value. We might arbitrarily attach value to them, but that is emotive and not reasoned. Now, it's interesting and troubling that we are in an age of human rights par excellence, and yet there are forces at work in our world that undermine a rock-bottom claim of human dignity that alone can ground a robust, sustainable regime of human rights. Certain excisions of our humanity are obvious, and in the headlines, for example, um, Osama bin Laden's claim that Americans, Jews, and infidels, which includes all Muslims who don't agree with him, uh, can be slaughtered whenever and wherever they are to be found. Men, women, children, armed or unarmed. We see it there. We see the problem immediately. Entire categories of humanity stripped of all rights in the rhetoric and in the practices of those inflamed by this rhetoric, as Americans learned so tragically on 9-11 and our British brothers and sisters learned on 7-7. People being killed because of who they are indiscriminately. Now, there are other forces at work undermining the ground of human dignity by eroding the full force of our humanity, whether whole or broken, normal or abnormal, young or old. So totalizing the population biology or econometric perspectives are two of the ways, just two, 
we have devised to do this. And these approaches have worked their way into medical thought and practice and into medical ethics. I know this rather well because I crossed the street to go over to um, the medical school at the University of Chicago once a year to do a seminar for the students who are taking the required course in medical ethics. And I keep telling them they need to throw out the textbook uh, because it's simply wrong, for one thing. I won't go into the details, the way it divides the universe of moral discourse and so on, but so far that hasn't happened. Um, well, now I'm not going to start down there. It'll take too much time. Um, I appreciate that many who share the view that seriously deformed infants should be euthanized uh, will be horrified by my remarks. They, they will insist, are being decent and humane. They're trying to prevent useless suffering, which is a bit of an odd locution because it suggests there's useful human suffering, but uh, let that be too. Uh, here are those of us working to counter the uh, forces, the utilitarianism, positivism at work, um, should acknowledge these urgencies. The people one opposes are not monsters, for the most part though there are surely some who wield the needles bearing death who are, like the notorious Dr. Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Death, as he actually liked to be called. Instead, I suggest most people embracing this perspective want to do the right thing. Now, Lewis understood this. He understood that various ideologies, including some contemporary right-to-die ideologies, are arbitrarily wrenched from their context in the whole. And here his reference point is to those truths that he has discussed, that he calls the Tao, remember those universal truths. And when these ideologies are wrenched from that context, he says they are swollen to madness in their isolation, and in this way, claims to human values are weakened or reduced to superstition. The Nietzschean ethic can be accepted only if we are ready to scrap traditional morals as a mere error and then to put ourselves in a position where we can find no ground for any value judgments at all. Now, at this point in his essay, Lewis turns explicitly to our conquest of nature, the way people in his era heralded a coming age of man's triumph over nature's arbitrariness. Now, his examples of this are going to sound uh, archaic and very quaint to you. But his examples, and each one would warrant a fuller discussion, are the airplane, the wireless, and the contraceptive. Now, I want to take up contraception. What's his beef about that for closer examination? Um, the living, Lewis argued, deny existence to the not yet living through this method and we believe we can engage, and here's his real concern, in selective breeding with nature as its instrument. Now, harsh words you might think, but consider that this exercise of power, uh, perhaps better put, the way this power can be exercised and even promoted by states, implies the power to make one's descendants what one pleases. For each new power won by man is a power over man as well. I'm still quoting. Each advance leaves him weaker as well as stronger. The final stages come when man, by eugenics and by an education and propaganda based on an allegedly perfect applied psychology, has obtained full control 
over himself. Human nature will be the last part of nature to surrender to man. Now, Lewis, remember he's writing the era of Nazi eugenics policy, and he's very concerned about these developments. Now, he held out hope that the obstinacy of real mothers, real nurses, and real children might preserve the human race in such sanity as it still possesses. But the man-molders of the new age will be armed with the powers of an omnicompetent state and an irresistible scientific technique. We shall get at last a race of conditioners who really can cut out all the posterity in what shape they please, end of quote. It's extraordinarily prescient, uh, Lewis is, on this issue. Because if you read the material coming out of um, the genome, uh, the, the DNA fundamentalist movement, um, you begin to see in some of the language now of positive genetic enhancement because no one wants to say eugenics anymore uh, for the reasons that I'm talking about here because of its association with horrific historic events. You can see this, this enthusiasm about controlling someday perfectly the kinds of human beings we produce. Now, Lewis's reference point, as I pointed out, and hit that of his readers, would have been National Socialist Germany with its cruelly enforced eugenics. I doubt many in his own country suspected that their society might one day enter this particular danger zone. And it wouldn't be under the banner of totalitarianism, but under the rubric of human choice and freedom. As Lewis fretted about post-humanity, we have our own apostles, as you know, of the post-human uh, future. Now, when C.S. Lewis, in 1944, wrote of the abolition of man, he wasn't trafficking in metaphor. He really meant it, the abolition of an understanding of the human person as we have known it. He meant the end of humanity as we know it, brought about by humanity itself, by our inability to limit what St. Augustine called the libido dominandi, the lust to dominate, including dominating over our own natures. Now, this can take such obviously disgusting and evil forms as gulags and death camps, but it can also appear in other guises and in the name of doing good. Now, I want you to understand I'm not trafficking in moral equivalences here. I'm not saying that contemporary positive eugenics is identical to uh, the eugenics projects of states like the Nazi state. But I am alerting us to the very real dangers in our world at the moment. And I'm going to move to uh, start to wind down here. You have to bear with me for a few more pages and hope my voice holds up. So far, so good. Current projects of self-overcoming are tricky to get at critically precisely because uh, they are not so manifestly hideous as the horrors of 20th century totalitarianism, precisely because they present themselves to us in the dominant language of our culture. Choice, consent, freedom, and precisely because they promise and escape from the human condition into a realm of near mastery, which is where a lot of among us would like to be. So we are readily beguiled with the promises of a new self. Sorry. Uh, so consider that we're in the throes. I spoke of genetic fundamentalism a moment ago, DNA fundamentalism, and a kind of uh, structure of biological obsession with genetics that undermines a recognition of the fullness 
and the limitations of human embodiment. And one premise driving the Human Genome Project was the notion that we might, as I've already suggested, one day intervene in order to promote better, if not perfect, human products. And promoters of this development run to the ecstatic, ran to the ecstatic and still do. For example, a 1986 pronouncement um, by a geneticist that the Human Genome Project, quote, is the holy grail of human genetics. The ultimate answer to the commandment to know thyself. So if you want to ask, if you wanted to ask this gentleman, who are we, it would be you're your genes. That's who you are. Nothing more than that. Now, I also suspect, I believe, that we nowadays are loath to grant the status of givenness to any aspect of ourselves. We, we don't like that way of talking that suggests there are things we can't manipulate and can't change. Uh, despite the, the fact that anyone who's ever been in contact with a human baby uh, knows that there's a body there, um, wriggling complex little body uh, that comes uh, sort of programmed with all sorts of delicately calibrated reactions to the human relationships that nature presumes will be the matrix of child nurture. Now, if we think about bodies concretely in this way, then we're propelled to ask ourselves questions about the world these little bodies enter. Not, is this little body perfect, according to some ideal of what perfection is, but um, is the world in which this little body has appeared, is it welcoming and warm and responsive? Uh, attuned to the uniqueness of this particular one, who is bound to be, as we all are, less than perfect. Now, if we tilt in this sort of bioconstructivist direction, one in which the body is raw material to be worked on and worked over, the surroundings in which bodies are situated fades, and the sort of perfect body gets enshrined as a kind of messianic project. So it's unsurprising that certain experts declare, as a matter of fact, they don't even think they have to argue the point. If you look at this body of literature, declare, here's just one sample, we must inevitably start to choose our descendants by permitting or preventing the births of our own children according to their medical prognosis, thus selecting the lives to come. And the argument in this particular essay was, so long as society doesn't cramp our freedom of action, we're going to stay on this road of progress and will exercise sovereign choice over birth by consigning to death or non-existence those with a less than stellar potential for a life, quote, not marred by an excess of pain or disability. As you can see, that is an extraordinarily slippery uh, way to put it, an excess of pain or disability. One of the occasions this last year when I was in uh, London, uh, there were a couple of cases, one that had really hit the papers and was in the headlines, of a woman who uh, resisted her OBGYN practitioner who was insistent that she should abort because the sonogram indicated that her child would have a cleft palate. That this is now be, being considered by some as one of those imperfections that means this child uh, should not even be born. Um, and the doctor, by the way, didn't deny it. Now, what C.S. Lewis called the extreme rationality that consigns not reason, 
but a kind of narrow notion of rationality that consigns to the dustbin of history all claims of intrinsic value as those embracing such truths cannot allegedly meet certain standards of a rationalistic defense of those values, this winds up promoting a subjectivism of values that it believes is somehow more honest. And when this happens, those whose values triumph will be those who possess the most overwhelming will to power. By contrast, according to Lewis, a dogmatic belief in objective value is necessary to the very idea of a way of life, a form of rule which is not tyranny, or an obedience which is not slavery. Now, we seem to have moved rather far from the real-world drama of disabled newborns being intentionally euthanized, but I hope, if I've done my job at all competently, that this is not the case. I hope you can see in the celebration of deliberate infanticide as the courageous and reasonable thing to do, what reason dictates. I hope you can see the sort of thing that C.S. Lewis warned us against in 1944. Why not love this being, this helpless being, in the time God has given her? What can this disabled newborn teach us about grace and beauty and human life, about caritas, about love and charity? Why can we not ameliorate pain and discomfort without believing we must either use extraordinary measures to keep alive or else boldly kill. In conclusion, I want to tell you a story. Last year, the 18-year-old son of one of my cousins died. He was supposed to die when he was an infant, before he became a year old, certainly. He had been born anencephalic. He could never speak. He could never feed himself. He couldn't sit. Uh, he couldn't crawl, he couldn't walk, he couldn't do any of the normal things human beings generally do or learn to do. Now, according to the doctors, there was no there there, if you will, that Aaron was definitely a candidate for infanticide. Um, certainly, if you follow uh, Peter Singer of Princeton, um, he should have been euthanized at birth, um, but according to Singer, parents can make that decision even after birth. But to anyone who met him, Aaron was a beautiful child with the biggest blue eyes and striking, strikingly dark eyelashes imaginable. He stared out at the world, making no apparent distinctions until his mother came into view. And then his face, the only words you can think of, and you would use these same words if you'd seen this, his face would beam or his face would light up. There's another way to put it. He knew her, and he loved her, and I would defy anyone, anyone to claim otherwise. And her love and care and devotion kept him going for 18 years. And when he died, an entire family, parents, siblings, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and a wider community grieved their loss. Now, my cousin, Paula Jean, never once bemoaned her fate, uh, or wondered what might have been if this child had been born a different kind of Aaron. Um, Aaron had been given to her, and she would do her job joyfully. And in those 18 years, this young man, who could not move on his own, never once developed a bed sore. I think those of you who have ever 
tended an infirm person know how difficult it is to prevent these kinds of things from happening. So the story of Aaron and Paula Jean is an amazing story of human grace and human endurance. I think it tells us that we have within us the strength to do things that the wider culture tells us we cannot do or should not do. So I ask you to contrast this with a vision of peace promulgated by the euthanasia doctor. There are two contrasting images of the human future embedded here. One in which human beings will write perhaps the decisive chapter and the story of whether we will abolish man, the human person, that is obliterate what makes us truly human or whether we will love and cherish our humanity, however wretched, however broken. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your talk. My pleasure. Um, I was very touched by what you said. And I'm, I'm getting up here because I'm really a shy person, so this is really hard for me. I have a master's degree in mental in special education with an emphasis in yeah. mental retardation. And I spent most of my entire adult life working with children that were seriously disabled. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of children with Down syndrome in my classes yes. over the years. And they gave me a great deal more yes. than I gave them. And Mother Teresa said, a nation that accepts abortion is not teaching its citizens how to love. And I think she's also said we have to love until it hurts. My question to you was putting all these, you know, connecting the dots here, is do you think we are a nation that either does not know how to love or is so terrified of it that we just don't do it anymore? Because to love means that we have to die to ourselves constantly. <laughs> And if you just respond to that, I'd really appreciate it. And thank you so much. And thank you, Eric, very much, wow. dear. Thank you. Well, thank you for your question. You did uh, very well. I wouldn't worry about the shyness uh, <laughs> at all. Um, it's a provocative question. Let me approach it in, in two parts. Um, one, uh, your statement about what you receive from these children, the Down syndrome children and so on. Um, that kind of observation, as you may know, is a very common one with people who actually spend time with and work with these children. Um, I think it's very easy to eliminate the whole category when you don't have any concrete experience of Down syndrome children. Um, so I just thank you for sharing that observation. Um, I um, have been especially interested over the years in among my students, the number of those who, when a certain discussion would uh, be proffered, would come up to me after class and say, I have a Down syndrome, uh, uh, syndrome brother or Down syndrome sister. And uh, it was fascinating to me how many of them wanted to go into fields that had to do with uh, the care and the tending and uh, the treatment of uh, children and adults with disabilities, that it, it enhanced, and this leads directly to the second part of my response to it enhanced their sense of a moral obligation and purpose, and I think one could say expanded their capacity to love those who are in some significant ways quite different from us. They're human beings, but they're human beings created differently, if you will. And that leads me to your question about knowing how to love. Um, uh, love is a complicated thing, and it involves a certain capacity to give of oneself. And I think that 
um, the last certainly four decades in American life, that notion itself has come into ill repute because we seem to have a kind of zero-sum understanding of the self itself. That is, if I give some of myself to another, it's a loss for me. It's a loss for me. If I give 10%, I'm only 90% left, you know, for who I am. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of equation of self-giving with self-abnegation. And I think that that constrains in palpable ways our capacity to give of ourselves and to receive at the same time because our abstract view is we will get nothing. We will just give, give, give and get nothing out of it. Um, and, it's, and what one receives, of course, is not quantifiable. It, it would make no sense to the person concerned with maximizing utilities at all. You should see those people try to think about um, uh, Christian martyrdom, for example, you know, dying for one's faith and some of the absolutely hilarious notions about how the person is maximizing his or her utilities by bravely going to death rather than to recant the faith, maximizing the utility of a preference for an afterlife or some bizarre. I mean, you know, they, they just can't deal with certain very powerful fundamental human things. And love is one of them. Love is one of them. So to the extent that the views I've talked about become ever more um, widespread and deepened in the culture, I fear that you may be right, that we can be very sentimental and romantic about love but the sort of hard work of, of giving and receiving, I think we're, we're frightened of. Okay. Just one other thing I'd like to add. Sure. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that back in 1944. Yeah. He was very visionary. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you again. Yeah, Thank th you. my pleasure. Thank you. Hi. Hi. <clears throat> I go to one of the medical schools here in town. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> it's very much like C.S. Lewis talked about, where you have the assumptions presented to you, but never the argument itself. Yeah. And, you know, everything from electron neurons talking about you're no more than the sum of your neurons, and to um, today's discussion of, you know, end-of-life decisions, yeah. with the reasonable decision being to pull the plug as soon as right. possible, mm -hmm. and the unreasonable decision being making unreasonable measures to hold on to life. Um, my question is more of a practical question. Yeah. Um, I don't know that C.S. Lewis's book ever affected how anything was taught in the upper forms of schools in the 40s. And my question is, is there anything, are there any types of um, anything else that can be done? Um, in a year, I'll be running around like crazy, you know, staying up to all hours. I'm not sure I'll be in the best to make a philosophical defense of whatever decision I don't want right. to, right. I mean, whatever decision I'd like to make in the face of a medical community that doesn't understand right. it. Are there resources available for... Um, you know, actually building a philosophical underpinning so that you can make an argument when the time comes at, you know, 3 a.m. and you're having, you're being pushed by someone right. who has a high level of authority over you. Right, right. Well, uh, you're, you're in a pickle. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, it, I, I understand a bit of what you're going through. My kid brother uh, is an MD, and, um, and I have some sense of how grueling that is and how uh, little time there is, in fact, almost no time. It, the possible time for reflection is eclipsed quite radically. Um, so I understand the situation that you're in. Um, I would say that by the time it gets to the actual decisions that you're uh, confronted with in medical school, uh, where, as I indicated, the time for uh, reflection is so truncated, uh, it's probably too late. That is, that um, certain frameworks of understanding 
and ideas that are alternatives to the dominant one that you've discussed uh, have to be present as possibilities, it seems to me, uh, as possibilities in the culture, even if they're not taught in the textbooks. There's one reason that C.S. Lewis said that his hope lay in real mothers and real nurses. He's referring to nannies who did so much child rearing in the UK, and real children, that they, in a sense, sort of burst through these, these categories uh, with their aliveness and their complexity. Now, you're dealing with people who are in a, in a situation where uh, it's easy to define them reductively as their ailment and to forget or to lose this wider sense of humanity. Uh, which again, remember at the beginning I said, would caution us about um, physician-assisted euthanasia, uh, would also caution us about um, certain, in a situation where the person is clearly terminal, about a kind of endless prolongation of life. Um, I think that that too can have its own form of sort of cruelty attached to it because the person is so thoroughly medicalized and uh, simply given the panoply of equipment removed from the, the touch and the care often of, of loved ones. So um, your task is a big one. And I think that what you could do um, is to, if you don't have one of these at your medical school, see if you could start one. I know there's such uh, groups at the University of Chicago Medical School. Um, there's a group of uh, cr Christian physicians, Christian physicians in training, um, groups that uh, think about themselves as wanting to go beyond their training and consideration of some of the medical dilemmas that will be presented to them, and they provide one another with support. I mean, this is a very difficult thing to do as a lone project, and I think that some sustainable support would be of enormous uh, help to you. Um, so um, I can only uh, wish you good luck. It's hard to persevere against the kind of driving force that you're confronted with, um, and I, I very much understand that. But I think sometimes just piercing through the sort of fog and saying, hang on, what are we doing here? Let's think about it. Sometimes that can have a bracing effect, a salutary effect. People say, gee, you know, hmm, I wonder. You know, they're forced perhaps, perhaps, no guarantee, to reflect on what it is they're doing. Um, the political philosopher Hannah Arendt argued very eloquently that the task of the political theorist is not to tell people what to do, but to help people to think what they are doing. And I suspect that's the task of uh, so many of you in this room in your own respective vocations. Try to get people just to think for a moment about what they're doing. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi. Hi. I'm Jennifer. By the way, I'm also an Oxonian, so there's another one. Ah. <laughs> one of those. Well, how one was Sharon Stone? Sorry, I know there's exactly. a... Sorry about that. Um, anyway, my question yeah. was about human fertility control. Yes. Um, if you really think about it, I think all human marriages employ some degree of fertility control, both in the selection of a marriage partner and also by various means, such as marital abstinence yeah. or something like that, that would consciously yeah. limit the children that are born usually for economic reasons or something else. So I was going to ask you, um, would you consider this to be a standard by which all of us stand condemned? And the sense that we are making say, conscious... Say the last sentence again, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I said, would you which... consider this a standard by which we should all stand condemned? Uh, that this uh, is a conscious choice in right. which we're deciding 
who yeah. should be the yet to be born, yeah. Yeah. or would you yeah. locate the wrong elsewhere? Yeah, um, I think um, obviously C.S. Lewis isn't here. Would he were? I would be uh, much more interesting than than me standing up here um, to uh, discuss these things with us. I suspect uh, that he wasn't so much issuing a general statement about um, couples limiting births within a marital relationship as he was very concerned about the philosophy that was being promoted uh, in tandem with uh, couples' decisions to do that. That is, the notion that we are most human when we're fully in control of things. Uh, we are most human when we can decide who lives and who dies. Now, obviously, when a couple is using um, some form of birth limitation, let's call it, instead of control. I don't like that word control very much because it's part of the problem, um, actually. Let me just tell you something. The birth control movement, when it emerged in the early 20th century, was a eugenics movement, as many of you surely know. Uh, Margaret Sanger, who was the big apostle of birth control in the United States, was a eugenicist and had a journal preaching eugenics. And, you know, Jews weren't supposed to have kids and people from, from southern Europe were not supposed to have kids. They're inferior. And she pushed and they went through limited immigration quotas for less worthy people from certain parts of Europe and all the rest. So, so there's that kind of thing in the, in the background that Lewis knows about. And then you've got Nazi eugenics in the foreground. Um, so I think it's that notion of control, especially as he tells it us, when you have this unholy alliance of a, of a certain set of unprincipled scientists and an omnicompetent state. That's where the gravamen of the argument lies. And to the extent that uh, human beings immerse themselves in this philosophy, I think he would tell us that's extraordinarily corrupting. I don't think that he would stand in front of a couple who have three children and think that that's enough. I don't think he would say, shame on you, you should have ten. I, I don't, he wouldn't do that. So I think it's the wider philosophical surround within which things happen that he's trying to get at, I suspect. Um, because he certainly didn't uh, ever write a Jeremiah against... Um, you know, against uh, birth, as I said, limitation, since I'm allergic to the root control. But at any rate, if that helps. Yeah, okay. Good evening. Good evening. Um, my name is Alex. Right. I wanted to put forward a distinction between value yeah. and values. Value uh, and values? Yes. Okay. Um, one of my favorite stories is the Grand Inquisitor, uh, where Jesus comes back to the earth and is immediately arrested and told, how dare you come back? Uh, the responsibility you gave to individuals crushes them. And so we, the church, have taken on that responsibility yeah. for ourselves and yeah. give them value so that they don't have yeah. the responsibility to create them themselves. Yeah. <clears throat> One of his friends, Solovyov, also said that love, which I think is the point, as the first questioner indicated, is the recognition of the absolute value of the other. Yeah. And uh, so what I was wondering is that could the idea that an individual has objective value still be a value that we come to subjectively as a community, as an individual? Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let me clarify um, the distinction, let's say, between uh, subjective as in um, your understanding of your own um, 
approach to or awareness of certain issues, your understanding of them and so on. And of course, that's going to be subjective in the sense it has to do with you. Uh, you're a subject and you're thinking about these things. Let's distinguish between that and the kind of subjectivism that, uh, that Lewis was criticizing. And I suspect the way he would talk about it would be to say that um, subjectivism presumes that each of us is in our own isolated little world of our entirely uh, and uniquely subjective values. These differ from person to person, and there's no way to adjudicate between them. So it's that kind of subjectivism that he's concerned with. Uh, and, and that undermines these claims of value, as you talked about it. Um, if we lived in a society in which uh, there was a way people could connect certain awarenesses that they have, let's call it a subjective value, um, to this wider notion of objective value, then I don't think we'd have the, the problem that Lewis is talking about here. I think it's the disconnect. You know, the, the claim subjectivism triumphs when people have relinquished the notion that there really are claims of value. There really are things that are true and things that are false, as Lewis says, to the kind of universe we live in and the kinds of creatures that we are. Um, so it's that disconnect that I think is very, is very worrying. Let me say one other thing, and this is probably too late in the evening for me to even raise this, but I should tell you that in my own classes, I prefer to talk about moral norms or imperatives even than value or values precisely because of the subjectivist spin that these have received and because um, values came in with a triumph of a certain kind of market language, things have a value that is a price. Um, so the fact that we talk about these issues in that language now is itself perhaps, you know, sort of slants things or tilts things a certain way. But that's a whole other, we're not going to solve that problem tonight. But it, it's, it's another sort of, one of those issues that clusters, you know, to the issue that I'm talking about tonight. Does that make sense to you? About, yeah. okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Peter Martin, and I want to thank you for your talk. My pleasure. My question has to do with something that is current and very much present in front of us, and yeah. you as a political philosopher to comment upon, and that is the, uh, the uh, election today of our new Supreme Court yeah. uh, Chief Justice and how the culture wars yeah. are now couching this debate for the next appointee uh, who will be obviously an arbiter of a constitution of which this country was based upon. Mm -hmm. And remember, we're standing in a club that in 1862 supported Josiah P. Benjamin and the South as the mayor of New York wanted to secede from the Union. So in light of that, yes. and in light of the culture wars, can you speak to how we should couch those issues as we go forward? Yeah. And and uh, decide our next yeah. chief, our next justice. Thank you. Um, I, I'm probably skating on thin ice, but I'm going to answer your question anyway. Um, the um, um, I think Judge Roberts obviously did a very eloquent job of talking about the role of the judge, um, and the judge, in a sense, is someone who is obliged to respect a certain fundamental structure of law. And as you know, our Constitution uh, is. Im embedded within it are certain of these universal propositions about the human person. 
and about the kind of government that should follow given these understandings of the human person. Um, one of the things that struck me about uh, the Senate hearings of Judge Roberts, I was at a conference in D.C. and um, and I wasn't liking it so much, so every chance I could get, I went to my hotel room and turned on the C-SPAN. And um, one of the things that really struck me, and it actually ties into what I've said tonight, which is why I decided I'd, I'd have a go with your question, was the fact that uh, given his stellar qualifications, uh, given his intellect, given his respect for the Constitution, those who clearly had problems with him, fell back on the notion that he was deficient in feeling. Did you pick that up? He's deficient in feeling. Um, so they're accepting that sort of reason-feeling split. You know, maybe the smartest guy who ever came down the pike, but boy, you know, what about your heart, as uh, Senator Schumer put it? Uh, in fact, he said, quote, you may be the most powerful intellect ever to come before this committee, but I want to know about your heart. And what that meant was you don't ooze sentiment the way we think people should. And, and that's a way of saying uh, the, the kind of objective status of the claims embedded in the law, that's not enough. You've got to prove that you could go on Oprah and weep on cue. And I, and I think that... And I think that that, I think that, that corrupts our public discourse um, because, you know... Um, any person can do that if called upon to do it. It's a far greater challenge. Uh, and, and by the way, the law is supposed to protect us against momentary deluge of, of an excess of feelings of that sort. That there's a way in which the law at its best should embody um, reasoned emotion. Uh, certainly our founders were, had that when they were talking about human freedom and human liberty and human dignity and all the rest. Uh, and I think that this kind of rancid antithesis between the two um, was as presented by Schumer and Dianne Feinstein and uh, Senator Biden, although it's very difficult to tell what he's saying anymore. Um, but because it's a weird stream of consciousness, someone should call that to his attention. I, I think that... <clears throat> There's a real problem, you know, because the, these folks surround themselves by sycophants and no one says to him, you know, you're running on at the mouth and it makes no sense. But anyway, um, I think that, that that kind of view is, in fact, rife in the culture, as you know, uh, and, and promotes and preserves precisely the split that Lewis is criticizing in this 1944 essay. So as far as the net, I mean, all hell is going to break loose. Everybody knows that. Um, and I reckon that it will be deficient in feelings and uh, probably deficient in intellect because you're not as smart as Judge Roberts, whom we thought was deficient in sentiment. So, you know, who knows how this will, will go. But, um, but I, it's worrying if many of our elected officials, in fact, lose sight of, even if it's a temporary instrumental claim lose sight of this larger issue of the law and what it embodies and what it represents. Yeah. Well I tell you what, why don't I do them seriatim and then I could will you permit that? And then Seriatim? Seriatim. Okay. <laughs> mm. 
I don't know what that means. So. <laughs> I just means all of you in a row and then okay. I'll answer it all at once. Sorry. Uh, One at a time is another way to put it. <laughs> that, you know, that's about the only Latin word I know. By the way. No, I, I actually know more than that. <laughs> well, my question is, that, well, you promised a sobering talk and I think you delivered it. Yeah. Um, and it seems like the general tra trajectory that you're painting at continuing Lewis's description is one of a decline. And I was wondering what you see in the culture at large that is heading in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Is there a path to combat mm -hmm. this decline, not just in individual lives, but yeah. out in the broader culture? Yeah. Thanks. Go ahead. I, I'm going to take all, each question. All right, and then I'll then I'll, I'll respond to all of them. At, I'll respond to both of them. At, yeah. I I I appreciate your talk, and Thanks. I want to thank you. But I also have a question about what how, what your depth of knowledge is of medical um, of about med what I'm about sorry. the medical um, imperative about the med about the mission mm -hmm. of any doctor. Mm -hmm. um, I happen to be one, mm -hmm. and I have mm -hmm. seen the suffering. I've been in the yeah. the uh, the units where the children are being preserved at right. extensive costs, and I am in favor of it. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the mythology of the omnipotent doctor does uh, vex me because I wish I were omnipotent, yeah. Yeah. and I do work with children who are emotionally and uh, intellectually impaired and uh, so I, I wonder about our resources yeah. and why our society, if we do want to support someone like C.S. Lewis, why can't we give the resources? So yeah. that's my question. Yeah. Well, thank you and, and in turn um, the, the first question about uh, the troubles that C.S. Lewis saw his society in in 1944. And mind you, this was a society that it was, had stood up against the Nazis when nobody else was doing it. Um, so, you know, there was still some robustness there. Um, and he certainly accepted that, but he saw these other troubling signs. Um, I'm just going to tell you something that struck me very recently about possible sources of renewal and a kind of revivification of a certain hope, including a hope that links us from generation to generation. Because one of the characteristics of many of the developments I was criticizing is a kind of, of um, presentism. You know, the world starts with me, it will end with me, and that I, I don't, I'm not acknowledging my indebtedness to the past, and I don't much care about what's going to happen in the future, because I won't be here anyway. So I think that notion that we are part of a great, sort of chain of humanity, as St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I'm not, I didn't, I can't, didn't invent this all by myself. That, I thought, came through so powerfully. I was talking to Joe about this before I came up here, in uh, Pope John Paul II's funeral. And this outpouring of humanity that took the media utterly by surprise. By then, they shouldn't have been surprised, because it happened all, every time he did anything. Uh, but what struck me was the millions of young people who turned up and stayed there under these very difficult conditions for days in order that they could be present. Something wa was calling to them. Uh, he somehow spoke to them, even in, in his infirm old age with the Parkinson's and all the rest. Um, and I think if we could think, I can't do it now, think this through with you, which would be a very interesting exercise. Think about what that embodied and what hope that represented. I think we could see some possible sort of sparks 
for a certain kind of renewal of our humanity more fully understood, uh, which is what C.S. Lewis is talking about. On the medical profession, um, I, as I told you, I trek over to the medical school uh, um, from time to time, not every day. Um, have a kid brother who's a doctor, read a lot of stuff. Uh, and I certainly do know that the, um, that the number one promise that a physician takes is, is not to do harm, is to do no harm. Um, and what I wanted to suggest in my talk is that um, harm is a complicated and slippery word, and that there are various ways that harm can be done, but we, just, we, we justify it or we we comfort ourselves by saying, I'm doing the right thing, I'm easing suffering, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And one other thing um, to conclude, um, because I, I have this sense of Eric sort of chomping at the bit back here, is that, is that um, much of this, the pressure put on doctors comes from patients. That is, patients have imbibed a view of the omnipotence of the doctor and put pressure on doctors in all kinds of ways. I saw that in an oncology ward uh, when I was being the um, spokesperson for a colleague who was a Czech emigre and had no family who was dying of a very uh, pernicious and aggressive form of leukemia. And I, had, I spent a lot of time in there. And um, doctors at times uh, pushed things beyond what the family thought would be best and at times that doctors were ready to say, we really, it's, we need to let the person go, and, and you have to think of ways to take leave, um, but they felt pressured by the family to keep going against all hope. So this is a wider cultural set of assumptions that gets reflected in a variety of ways in each of our vocations, and in a particularly powerful way in the medical profession, obviously. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.